Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Well, this program, listeners, is for you. No matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to, Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to set the stage for this interview by reviewing the history of the founding of our country. In the 1600s and 1700s, people did not come to a place called the United States or even America. The initial governmental entities here in the New World were colonies founded by independent groups of people often from the same area of Europe. Immigrants came here to be a citizen of one of those colonies. Each colony had a different character. For example, a citizen of Connecticut colony might not be comfortable or even welcomed in Virginia colony, and vice versa. The colonies did unite to fight the Revolutionary War, but even with that common goal, the unity was contentious and far from unanimous. That is why, in writing the Constitution, our founders created a federation of independent states and specifically left power in the hands of the states and the people of the states. They also limited the federal government to the enumerated powers in Article I, Section 8. To further solidify that balance in favor of the states and their citizens, They included the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. You know that the Tenth Amendment state that all powers not specifically delegated to the federal government and not prohibited to the states are reserved for the states and the citizens of those states. As a matter of fact, a recent Supreme Court decision called, in fact, a recent Supreme Court decision, U.S. versus Bond, specifically gives Tenth Amendment rights to individual citizens in addition to the states. The Ninth Amendment is one that is often overlooked, but the Ninth Amendment is also important. It says that there are some things that the founders may not have thought of, they might have not have known about, 
And even those things are prohibited to the federal government and are reserved to the states and the citizens of those states. For the past hundred years, we have seen a relentless usurpation of power by the federal government, ruthless and purposeful evisceration of the Constitution by those with a lust for totalitarian, centralized control of our nation and our citizens. In spite of all reasonable efforts by American patriots, the federal government continues its unlawful power grab. It is with this scenario in mind that I introduce my guest, Bill Kennedy, the state director of the North Carolina Tenth Amendment Center. The Tenth Amendment Center is a national think tank that works to preserve and protect the principles of strictly limited government through information, education, and activism. So that's why we're going to be talking about today. We'll be talking with Bill Kennedy, and I just want to tell you a little bit about his background. He admits to being an Air Force brat in Florida. He spent his adolescent years moving from state to state, from one military installation to another. At the height of the Vietnam War in 1967, he graduated from high school in Charleston, South Carolina. He didn't know what else to do, so he joined the Air Force. His father was a flight engineer on a C-141 transport, making numerous trips in and out of Vietnam. He convinced him not to be a helicopter pilot. And so he graduated with a, a specialty in communications equipment repair in Texas. He also uh, got married along the way and lived for, uh, for a number of years in Charleston, South Carolina. Just so that you know his background is varied, he had a passion for politics. He had a wish to end the Vietnam War. And so he became the Dorchester County campaign manager for Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern. But he didn't stop there. He was a participant in numerous campaigns and elections later on, voting for both Democrats and Republicans, and he now settled in to be the precinct chairman for the Republican Party in North Carolina. So, married with children, living in Charleston, South Carolina, he discovered that the mountains might be a great place to live, and so he moved to Avery County in North Carolina permanently in 2009. I'm going to read this one paragraph before I introduce him, and I'm quoting, Since my passion for politics and history has never waned, and the unconstitutional actions by the federal government have only become more numerous and bolder, I gravitated to a website that shared many of my same beliefs about limited constitutional government. The Tenth Amendment Center out in California, of all places, attracted my attention and intrigued me, so one day I filled out a volunteer questionnaire, and after numerous interviews and questions, I became the state director of the North Carolina Tenth Amendment Center in January of 2012. So he's been on the job for a year, and Bill Kennedy, welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So obviously, the Tenth Amendment Center, a major force to be reckoned with, in dealing with usurpation of power by the federal government. What exactly is the Tenth Amendment Center? What does it do, and what is your part in it? 
Well, like I said, I, I filled out that volunteer questionnaire, and after numerous uh, interviews with uh, Michael and several other of the uh, upper people in the organization, um, they decided that I could possibly help out here in North Carolina, so I've been doing my best to do that. At the time, they only told me it was going to be a few hours a week to do this, and uh Maybe they just didn't see all the things that were going on and uh, as far as the uh, federal government was concerned, but uh, it's become more and more of a, uh, a daily, hourly project, uh, writing numerous articles, uh, contacting legislators, uh, working on model legislation. Um, in fact, we're doing quite a bit of that right now, trying to get prepared for the uh, North Carolina legislature getting back in session later this month. Um, we uh, try to stay ahead of, or at least uh, keep abreast of what's going on as far as uh, nationally is what the federal government is trying to force onto the states. And what we try to do is we try to work with the local legislators and make them understand that the federal government is not going to fix the problems that the federal government creates. And people keep thinking, well, if we just re-elect or elect some different people and send them up there, things will change. Um, so far, that hasn't worked out very well. I don't think anybody would agree that it has. And then the other alternative, a lot of times people think, well, you know, let's take them to court. Let's take this to the Supreme Court. And... I think with the, just the Obama care verdict that we got from the Supreme Court should give us a good example that that really just doesn't work out. So we have been very busy, and it looks like it's not going to get any uh, easier for us, not especially after some of the uh, pronouncements that we've gotten from the uh, Obama administration as of late and especially today. So tell me, what kind of issues uh, are you working on and what kind of issues are the, is the Tenth Amendment Center? What, what issues do they think are front and center uh, right now? Right now, the, uh, well, Second Amendment's taking a very quick lead, but presently Obamacare is something that needs to be settled on very quickly. Uh, originally, there were supposedly some states were supposed to decide on whether they wanted to be a state or state-federal hybrid or a federal health exchange. Um, over 25 states now have said, no, we're not going to set up our own exchange, so they're pretty much leading it to the federal government. We're probably reaching the breaking point as far as the federal government's ability to actually set up exchanges. We probably get close to 30 or more. I know North Carolina is um, under Bev Purdue has picked out uh, that we're going to be a state federal one. So we're trying to convince a lot of states no say no to setting up a health exchange. So Obamacare is it's the next thing. We've got numerous states already that we've um, helped set up model legislation that they can introduce. NDAA is another one uh, that needs to be. Uh, rolled out, and we've gotten numerous states that already have those in the works. Before we, I don't mean to interrupt, but before we get off no, Obamacare, let's, let's go back for a few minutes and talk about the implications of what the Tenth Amendment Center is trying to do with Obamacare. Um, 
the issue at this point then is setting up exchanges, uh, whether they will be run by the federal government or some kind of a hybrid between the state and the federal government. What, what's the implication of the difference between those two courses of action? Truthfully, not much in the sense that the federal government's going to lay out all the rules. They initially would uh, help fund the startup on the, uh, the exchange, but eventually the total bill is going to end up coming down on the state. So you can figure that your taxes are going to go up and it's becoming, uh, again, an, an unfunded federal mandate for them to set up this exchange. So Well, it, well if... if if it really doesn't make a difference, what effect does it have if a bunch of states say, you take care of it? Because when they wrote the bill, they forgot to figure out what the funding was going to be if the federal government actually ran the exchanges. They were under the mistaken belief that I think that they thought the states would just jump for joy at the idea of setting up uh, this Obamacare thing along with all the exchanges. So if the House in Washington, D.C. does what Republicans keep saying they would do, they would not fund the setup of the federal exchanges. So it would probably help just bring the whole thing down and it wouldn't ever get off the ground in the first place. But we're not going to uh, just sit back and hope that's exactly what happens. Uh, that's why I say we're going to go on with setting up nullification bills and the states saying that, you know, states aren't going to go along with Obamacare. But the first step, obviously, is just the rejection of the whole idea of setting up a state-run exchange and forcing everything into the federal government's hands if they would have to do it. Um, so if you have... You're listening to part one of three of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum featuring Bill Kennedy. We'll be right back after this. So if you have more states, the more states you have that are just bowing out of that whole thing, what you're doing is thrusting work and expense on the federal government that is already overburdened, obviously, with expenses. So you're basically saying, okay... You want it so bad, you take care of it. And hopefully if enough states do that, the burden will be too onerous, even for the federal government. And then you want to add into that, hopefully that the uh, Republican majority in the House will not fund these exchanges, uh, leading to a kind of collapse in some way, of at least a portion of the Obamacare legislation. That's correct. Um, in fact, the uh, federal government has already pushed back uh, the original date for states to make a decision on whether they wanted to uh, have a state-run exchange or a federal-run exchange um, from January to February. And now they've pushed it back again uh, because they're finding fewer and fewer states are even opting in at all. And more and more states are, have either said no or in the process of uh, making a decision, leaning more and more towards no. Um, well, that's why we're hoping that we can push uh, Pat McCrory into saying no, we're going to uh, return the money and not set up a uh, hybrid state-federal exchange. So what is the situation in North Carolina at this point? Uh, we still have the ability to say no? Yes, we do. Um, 
like I said, the the money's come, but the money hasn't been spent. Uh, so if um, Pat McCory would go ahead and, and just say, here, we're going to give you the money back. We're bowing out. If you want to set up one, then fine, you set it up. But we're not going to either have a state-run exchange or a hybrid state-federal um, because it doesn't really matter. No matter which way it runs, the federal government will set the rules and tell the state exactly what they have to do, and eventually the state would have the whole, the whole bill. So that's why uh, it's best to just force it back into their hands and say, all right, if you're going to set the rules, you might as well also pay the tab. Well, fortunately for the states, the Supreme Court decision did uh, forbid the federal government from penalizing the states for not participating. Isn't that correct? That's correct. So there really is no downside for any state uh, to opt out of forming these exchanges and just dumping it all back on the federal government and thereby hoping to delay things and cause uh, uh, cause problems for, for the entire program. That's correct, because really there is no upside uh, for them joining in. Uh, like I said, they will be uh, forced to live under whatever the federal government tells them. Uh, it's, it's like a lot of other things that the federal government gets involved in. Uh, they get the states to do it by dangling a little bit of money out in the very beginning, but then they always step back further and further and give the states less and less money, but they never uh, cease to continue to pass on more regulations and telling the states what they have to do. So, like I said, there was no upside for it and no penalty as far as the downside, so the the best choice is just to bow out of it. So... Realistically, this is no different than a lot of other times when the federal government says, here's what you got to do, but uh, I'm not going to pay you to do it. I'm just going to require you to do it. You know, you'd think a lot more states would rebel against that kind of a system and say, you know, what are you doing to us? You can't do that. We can't operate our business that way with you forcing us to do things and not paying for it. I mean, that, to me, would be a deal breaker. That, that's exactly it. Um, they've done that with uh, education. They typically fund maybe 10 to 15 percent of uh, state public education, but they probably are supplying maybe 75 percent of the rules, uh, and they're always coming up with new rules about what the state has to do and what the state has to provide. So uh, they're great for not giving much money, but, for all, but they want to give everything in the direction. But that's kind of what happened to the real ID um, when they came down with that, it was a you know another federal mandate. States have to do things, but in this case, they weren't even going to bother to fund it. That's why the majority of states just said, "No, we're not going to do this," and um, they continued to push out the dates and when the states are supposed to have to do it. So basically, in a roundabout way, the states have nullified the Real ID law because they just refused to do it, and the federal government can't make them, and so they have to bow back and keep saying no. Uh, I guess we'll change the date. You guys please comply sometime in the future, but it never happened. I think that obviously nullification is an issue that we're going to discuss a little bit later on uh, because that's a huge issue. It's a huge issue for me. Uh, I think it's the ultimate uh, weapon that states have. And that concludes part one of three of this very exclusive interview with Bill Kennedy right here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. 
Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Original sin.